I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as I go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode, Claire Babineau-Fontenot, CEO of Feeding America, will discuss the influence of a humble upbringing in a large family and how Feeding America's network of food banks distributed a record 6.6 billion meals in their last fiscal year. She shares how her heart and head were instrumental in the decisions that propelled her to success and how through learning from failure and growing from hardship have allowed her to write a new personal legacy. Hi, Claire. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you for being here. Excited to be here. So let's get into it. So thank you everyone for listening today. So for those who may not be aware, Claire, you are the CEO of Feeding America. And Feeding America is a nationwide network of 200 food banks and 60,000 food pantries and meal programs. And you once said, all of my experiences led me to where I am now, working to end hunger for millions of families as CEO of Feeding America. So tell us more about that. Yes, that's absolutely right. I, I fundamentally believe that that to be true. And I, I spent a whole lot of my life wondering, well, why? Why, why did I have the opportunity to, to do that? And why that in particular? Because my, my path was certainly not a straight one to this role. But in contemplating now that I've been in the role, and especially as we as a nation and our network as, as a family, big family, have confronted COVID, it has made it so crystal clear to me that all of those other steps that I took on this journey were necessary in order for me to more fully maximize the moment that we're in today. I know that sounds maybe even a little odd, but how do you maximize a moment like a global health pandemic? Mm -hmm. Well, I do believe as well that embedded in every crisis is certainly danger, but there's a lot of opportunity here and opportunity for meaningful, sustainable change that will live long past my my tenure in this chair. So yeah, uh, I believe it's true. I know. And for everyone listening, this is a recurring theme. You're going to hear again and again that these paths are not linear, right? You don't necessarily know when you're in it, where it's going to lead, um, but you know that it is going to lead to something and it all makes sense in retrospect, right? We can now tell a coherent narrative of how everything led to this point, but you didn't necessarily know that when you're in it. So let's just start from the beginning. You were raised in Louisiana. Your parents cared for more than 100 children. I think I read a number 107. Does that sound about right? Uh, well, unless you actually want to count me, in oh. which case it's 108. So. Okay. Well, we will count you. So 108. <laughs> Thank you for that. There are 108. That's right. <laughs> Through a combination of birth, adoption, fostering, it is an incredible story. You all can Google it and read all about Claire's incredible parents. So we won't you know, repeat all of that here. But I would just like to hear from you. What were some of the things that you experienced as a member of this family that have shaped you and defined who you are as a leader? Yeah. You know, it's funny that you said earlier when it comes to my career that all of these things make sense. These things lead to this, the way that I was, was raised, my family environment. It certainly informs everything that I aspire to be. It really shapes the way that I look at the world. Most of my siblings became members of our family after suffering some form or forms of neglect and abuse. I was able to not only understand that there's need and want here in the richest country in the world, but also to witness firsthand what generosity and kindness does. Mm -hmm. My parents didn't graduate from high school. They were brilliant. My father's still with us. My mom is now passed and absolutely brilliant people. So I learned that education is really important, but that books should not be judged by covers mm -hmm. in that house. They expected a lot from us. I learned about the power of expectations. Most of my siblings, in fact, would have been expected in another household to not go on and be self-supporting, to not get jobs, to not support families. But especially my mother, she, she saw who we could be in ways that were so powerful in informing who we became. So 
I learned about diversity mm-hmm. in that household. I have siblings that represent every part of the beautiful rainbow that is uh, the human existence in so many different ways, uh, across ethnicities, across religions, races, across uh, degrees of physical ability, mm-hmm. uh, educational attainment. So the things that matter. Yeah. I learned there. Do you know roughly what proportion you stay in touch with now? Well, uh, as time has passed, uh, my my mom learned about two little kids in a neighboring town who was struggling with neglect and abuse in 1963 when she was pregnant with me. So it's been 57 plus years. Over the years, we've lost many of us. Um, but I'd say there's a core of about 45 or so of us who are in rather frequent contact. That's incredible. So yeah, it's still a really big, a really big yeah. group. And then most of us have children. Many of us have grandchildren. Right, so you multiply it out um, and it's oh, like... Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Throughout my childhood, people came over for the spectacle that was going to our house. Uh, the Waltons was popular at the time. Uh-huh. And they're like, you guys must have something like a Walton table that you sit at. And of course we had something like a Walton table yeah. that we sat at. So so I still am in contact with, with a, a large number of my brothers and sisters. That's really incredible. So um, I always like to ask this question because we get some interesting answers. So what was your very first ever paying job? And what did what lesson did you learn from that that you still carry with you today? Yes. I recall vividly my first paying job was on campus. I worked in the library at the University of Southwestern Louisiana, that's what it was called at the time, now UL, otherwise known as Ooh La La for some. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yes. that's great. But uh, I, remember, I remember that job. And uh, I don't know what made me think. So we, with so many people in our family, my responsibilities at home and at school filled out my day before I went to college and then I got this job. And I remember coming to the realization that even in a job that I loved, and I loved books, I still do, love learning, love books. So I loved the fact that someone's going to pay me to work in the library. I mean, this is wonderful. But that even in a job that I love so much about, that there were going to be things about the job that I probably wasn't going to love nearly as mm-hmm. well. So starting to get myself conditioned for the fact that the work that we do is sometimes right. work. Sometimes they call it work for a reason, right? Something your parents say to you, you're like, thanks, not helpful. That's why they call it work. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I learned it. I learned it myself there that I wasn't quite as as energized by returning books to the stacks as I was by reading Mm -hmm. them when no one was in the library, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, things like that. Um, And in the work that I do today and all the work I've done since, Um, that there has to be a thread though for me in my work that really matters to me, that fuels me and energizes me. And I remind myself that I get to do that when I'm doing something that's similar to being in the stacks, returning books. Yeah. And I don't know that people in college now even get that experience of wandering the stacks. I mean, it was really incredible. I went to University of Illinois. I think we were the third largest library in the country at the time. It was like Library of Congress, something else and ours and just overwhelming and incredible. And I don't know that people do that anymore. Do they get to roam the stacks? I don't know. I don't know that they do. I, I hope, I hope there are people who, if they haven't done it in a while, maybe they'll go yeah. out and do it. Yeah. Now. Um, I, it, there's, there was something so special about it. And, and I, I came up really poor, right? So uh, we were not people of means and yet my, my parents kept finding ways to add members to the table, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I didn't grow up with a lot of material things, but I was able, and nor that my parents get to travel a whole lot until we started traveling by car. Uh, but I, I had so many vicarious experiences through mm-hmm. books. I have a love of literature that came from that, that I could sit in a room and go anywhere. Yeah. I could go anywhere. Yeah. And and books helped me with that. So there was a lot, a lot there. So yeah. 
there's this great Paul McCartney kids book, and I can't remember what it's called, but if you look it up, but that's what it's about. It's about how books can just transform and like send you to places and in your imagination that you could ever, never imagine. It's called something grandpa or grandkid. I don't remember. Basically, oh, I'll have to look yeah, it's Paul McCartney kid's book. I'm sure it won't be hard to find on the <laughs> internet, but it's, it's about exactly that. It's his grandfather who instills yeah. this in his grandchildren. They're like, where else can we go today, right? And then it's a new story. It's really great. Um, and those of you who can't see, Claire, only I can, you have this incredible superhero librarian look going on. You've got these great glasses, <laughs> this gorgeous outfit with this bow. I mean, if I had a superhero librarian, that would be you right now. Well, thank you very much. I wasn't even thinking about the fact that I was channeling my, inter yes. my inner librarian yes. for this podcast. I know. Thank you, you look like a Marvel character librarian superhero. Liking it. <laughs> so after Ulala, you went off to law school and ultimately spent eight years as state's attorney in Louisiana. So why did you make that choice? What motivated your interest in public service? Well, I actually, uh, it started with me making a decision way back when. I, I, I know that I was 12 when I spoke to my father. Remember, this is a man who he worked really hard. He was a he, he worked with his hands. Um, he had been a farmer's son, um, and I went to him and told him. And he hadn't graduated high school. And I went to him and and I told him when I was twelve that I when I grew up I was going to be a lawyer. And I I won't forget him the confidence with which he looked at me back and he said, Well, of course you will. He did also say, you argue all the time and that way people will pay you to do it. But but he, but the way he said, of course you will. I, I think maybe, well, I'm sure that at that moment, I thought I could be a lawyer. I think when my dad said, of course you will, I knew I could be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. and, and I was going to do so because I have so many brothers and sisters who I saw struggle and I wanted to be a children's rights advocate. Uh -huh. So the idea of becoming a lawyer made perfect sense. Right. The kind of law I practice made no sense to me <laughs> whatsoever because I went on to be a tax lawyer. Yes. Yeah. That was, that was one of those twists that my path took that I didn't really see coming. So why um, tax? I'm sure there's something about it, obviously, that drew you to it. What was it about it? Well, I've always had a facility for math. I love puzzles and I love mystery novels. I love, and I think math, that's what math is for me, right? These big puzzles that you get to solve. So I've always had a head for math. And I went to an HBCU for, for my law school. In fact, it is the most diverse, maybe the most diverse institution of higher learning in the country. About 48 or so percent black, about 47 or so percent white. And then other people who identify from different races fill in the middle of that. Uh, it, it has its foundation in um, a desire to ensure that African-Americans have opportunities for educational attainment. So it was a really powerful place for me to go to law mm -hmm. school. Right. So there I am. I'm just about done. In fact, I'd finished all my coursework. I'm sitting in the lobby at the law school with uh, my study group and we're going around the circle because we can just taste it. We're about to graduate. We're going around the circle talking about what kind of law we're going to practice. And they're saying all the kinds of stuff that I would have expected. Uh, I'm going to do a civil rights lawyer. I'm going to be a criminal lawyer. I'm going to no, I am going to be um, going to take big torts cases. I'm going to win a gazillion dollars. Mm -hmm. um, and I stopped and asked, does anyone know anybody who is a tax lawyer from, from Southern's Law School? And nobody did. I said, hmm, well, maybe I should do that. Now, it's that, that is so not like uh -huh. me. I am a planner. Uh -huh. I've got to tell you, I am such a planner. Um, so with that crazy idea, when I left law school, I worked at the Louisiana Department of Revenue. I did that for a good six to eight months before I realized I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. So then I decided maybe I should actually get some credentialing in, in tax. So I got an LLM in tax from SMU after that. And I loved it because, again, the law is about these puzzle pieces, mm -hmm. right? And 
figuring things out. And I love to do that. And, and I found I loved and I did tax litigation work. So many people who choose tax or who have an affinity for tax don't enjoy litigation. Many people who enjoy litigation don't have an affinity for tax. I could see that, right? So I, I, Someone who's really into the numbers and heads down doesn't necessarily like you know, the litigation part and then vice versa. Someone who wants to be out there constantly doesn't want to be necessarily heads down the numbers. So you had both skills, which is so unique. Exactly. So I carved yeah. out this lovely little niche, right? right? And, and it sustained a rich, beautiful career um, that put me on this trajectory as well. So it was you know, I said in all the roles that I had before Feeding America that I led with my head and then I tried to engage my heart. And with Feeding America, when I left Walmart, in fact, I told it to someone. I knew that I was going to have to force myself to leave because they had been very good to me. And I said I was going to go to a place where I was going to lead with my yeah. heart and engage my head. Well, let's just spend just a moment on exceeding your aspirations there because you really did reach the ultimate, you know, career pinnacle of tax. So you were both the chief tax officer and the global treasurer for Walmart, which is an extraordinary job. I can't even imagine how big of a job that is. So you were in consulting and private side litigation sector. What brought you to Walmart? I mean, that's such a switch. And what was the learning curve like? What did you learn there that prepared you for CEO? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll step back just a hair, if you don't mind. So when I was in, in government, I wound up becoming a gubernatorial appointee. So I had responsibility for all state tax litigation work for the state of Louisiana. Um, when I left there, I was I dabbled at big four um, and then I went back and at PricewaterhouseCoopers, now PwC, I led the dispute resolution practice group. So once again, I'm doing tax, but I also have that litigation mm -hmm. kind of dispute angle to the work that I was doing. When I joined the team at PricewaterhouseCoopers, Walmart was a client mm. there. And I'd spent most of my career, uh, well, a good bit of my career in Baton Rouge and Louisiana, close to home. I left, went to Dallas when we had knew we were having our first child. I wanted to go back home to be closer to my mom so and my family. So I went back to Louisiana and then I went back to, uh, to Dallas again to be dispute resolution practice group leader. But I noticed that I had the sense of ennui around wanting to be in court. And when I was at PwC, that was the one thing I couldn't do. I couldn't actually try the cases. So I went back to Baton Rouge and I joined a law firm there. Walmart, um, I, was, I felt great about the fact that they continued to be my client when I was in the law firm. So I continued to work on their work. And one fateful day, and I did primarily, I did commercial litigation work, but I had a specialty in tax and I led the tax practice for the firm. And um, one day Walmart, who was my client said, hey, why don't you come up to Bentonville, Arkansas? We'd like to talk to you about an opportunity. <laughs> and I did. So I went in, I started out with a smaller chunk of the tax responsibilities there. I ultimately, after about every four months or so, my team was doubling. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Mm -hmm. And that's going to get to my learning in just a second. And then after about a year and a half, I found myself, I, I was asked how whether I had an aspiration to be the chief tax officer. And it took me a while. I hesitated. So, well, if I had about 12 months and I could do my day job and then try to get myself ready for it on the side, I think I could do it. Two weeks later, I was announced as the chief tax officer. Two weeks, mm -hmm. not 12 mm -hmm. months. And then that was over a holiday too, because <laughs> it was January the 6th when I was announced as the chief tax officer. So um, so it had gone so quickly. And the job that I took coming into to Walmart, I felt I was so qualified to do. I'd prepared for 16 years to get ready for that. Chief tax officer, it felt like overnight a switch was turned on and bam, there you mm -hmm. are. So the lesson that I learned there. And then over the time, I'll finish that the Walmart story out a bit, though, that after that, I continued to get additional responsibilities cul culminating in my being the executive vice president of finance at Walmart, which had I was treasurer. I had responsibility for tax. I had responsibility for capital markets, for investor relations. And I also had responsibility for claims management there, too. So it was a really big, wonderful job. But I believe that I got the chance to do the rest of that and that I saw success in doing the rest of that because of something that I learned when I was the chief tax officer, which is, so I failed miserably at that job for the first six months, failed miserably. 
I went in for my eval, my mid-year eval with my boss, Charles Holly. And I remember telling him I was needs development. And he told me I was being too hard on myself. And I told him his expectations were too low. I was needs development. I was failing. And I realized that the reason I was failing is because I was pretending. And it, and it sounds absurd to say it, but this is effectively what I was doing. I was really insecure about whether I was ready for that job, whether it was too soon. The previous chief tax officer was this middle-aged white guy from Alabama. So I jumped into the job pretending I was that middle-aged white guy from Alabama. Mm -hmm. I tried to do everything that he did in the way that he did it. And I couldn't. It was the first time I found myself in a role where I was not the technical expert in everything that I was being asked to do. A large part of what I was being asked to do, I had to leverage other people's expertise in. So it was really jolting to me to be in that position. And I realized that I was failing and that the only possibility for me to be successful is if I started showing up as my actual self. And that was the one of the biggest epiphanies of my professional life. Yeah. And the idea that I, I am of value, I will find a path to value, but I'm not gonna be everything. Yeah. I'm finite. I can't do it all. I'm going to hire great people, mm -hmm. surround myself with fabulous people with wonderful expertise. I'm going to leverage the expertise of other people and be a good partner, but I'm not going to pretend anymore. I learned to stop pretending there. And that's the ultimate thing CEOs need to do, right? You cannot possibly you know, run every facet of your company, but the ability to understand who to hire, how to let them lead, I mean, that prepared you so well for the job. You know, as I'm hearing you talking, I just started this book. Someone just gave it to me yesterday. Have you read this, The Power of Giving Away Power by I Matthew not. Barzin? So he was Obama's biggest fundraiser. He was then ambassador to the UK. It's part of the Simon Sinek series, but I'm, I've, I'm only, what page am I on? I'm on page 21, so I'm not that far. But mm. the premise, it starts out with the reason so many leaders fail is that they're faking it. Yes. It's exactly what you just said. And that giving away power is the key to success as a leader. Again, page 21, let's see where it goes, but it's exactly everything you're just talking about. Wow. Well, I need that yeah. book. And I think it's actually prophetic that I hadn't read yeah. before this conversation because I, I didn't know of its existence and I will read it, but I've got it. I know that's true for yeah. me and I've seen it play out all around me too. And there's this license that people have to show up authentically mm -hmm. when you model that inside of the organization that you're yeah. in. And I, every place that I've been, I've been able to watch the organizations just blow through expectations. Um, and the secret sauce for me yeah. is what we just talked about. Yeah. It is, I do not pretend I know everything. And you know, may, may I mention, I was interviewed during the pandemic by someone who I was talking about what's been happening with Feeding America and the awesomeness of it all and sharing how honored I am that I get to do this work. And um, the person seemed to want me to talk about how I alone accomplished a particular feat. And I said, well, but except I didn't um, accomplish that feat alone. And then um, the person decided to try to chasten me um, this was a female who was interviewing me and she said, you know, men never tell me that. And you really need to stop saying that, essentially, she's telling me, because you need to be more self-confident. I mean, because men never tell me about other people. I said, well, then they're the ones who are wrong, not mm -hmm. me. They're lying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're either lying or delusional, right. one or the other. But it's not an option right. that remarkable things get accomplished and get scaled because one person by him or herself did everything. It's just not the nature of what happens in the universe. And, and I'm good with mm -hmm. that. I, I think I'm a pretty confident person. In fact, I think I'm more confident than a lot of people mm -hmm. that I've encountered. But I think my confidence actually comes from that being okay with the fact that I'm finite yep. and, and believing that I'm going to do even the hard stuff. 
like get the library, um, even some of the stuff that I don't enjoy, I'm going to stick with it and do the stuff that I don't enjoy when the work that I'm doing really matters to me and when I'm energized by the other stuff that I get to do. And that certainly has been true in the role that I have now. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Shore Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shore microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shore lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So you've had this epiphany. You're at the biggest job you could have, you know, as a tax attorney. And in 2015, you were diagnosed with cancer. Can you share a bit about that experience and how it changed you both personally and then professionally? Yes. So, um, a little context. Um, I used to make fun of runners because they I was around that age where people were starting to talk about how their knees were giving out or whatever happened. And I'm like, well, the good news about never having been a runner is my knees, they're like the knees of a babe. You know, never been used really other than to walk. <laughs> but right before April of 2015, um, I took up running and I found that I loved it. Um, and I got to be in the best shape of my of my adult life. So thinking I, this is awesome. Things are working out well. I'm doing awesome. Um, I went in for my executive physical in April. Um, and I learned that I had cancer and that has a way when, when I, I knew it before the doctor said it, I could tell, um, what were, where things were going. But something about when he said it, it just slowed stuff down. It was almost like he said it in slow motion. Mm-hmm. And it caused me to stop. And I had so many thoughts right in that space. I don't know how much time it took. I don't know how pregnant the pause was, but I know that I went through lots of things. And I thought about, why did I become a lawyer again? Oh, yeah, that's right. I wanted to help the kids like my brothers and sisters. But I had this thought in my head that I had enough time. I was in the best shape of my life after all. Uh, I had time. I was going to get to it. I dabbled. I'd been on nonprofit boards. Um, I'd volunteered. But in my heart of hearts, I knew that I had a capacity to do more and that I kept giving myself excuses for not doing it yet. And my cancer really made me say, okay, no more excuses. Um, I don't get always, I have no idea when, um, how long I get to be here. But I asked a question of myself, what if the best thing I'll ever do professionally is the best thing I could do here? Is that okay? And my answer was no. So I began the process of leaving Walmart. And it took a while Mm -hmm. because it wasn't an anti-Walmart move, right? right? And I wanted the company to thrive. And I know there are people who not everybody likes Walmart and not everybody probably should. Walmart is comprised of over 2 million humans. They make mistakes and such. they don't get everything right. But man, I, I was visited with great kindness and, and people saw in me capacity that remember it was going to take me at least 12 weeks and two weeks mm-hmm. later, I had that chance. And um, it was a really affirming environment for me where I achieved these professional objectives. And as I said, and even surpassed them. So it wasn't an anti-Walmart move, but it was a pro-me move. Yeah. So I went through a rather drawn out process. First, I had a little surgery I needed to do. And then, oh, and then another surgery and then another surgery and some chemo and some recovery. 
so I, I went through that that part of the journey. The good news, remarkable news, was that in all the privilege that I have among them is access to wonderful medical mm -hmm. care. My cancer was caught early. My prognosis was good almost immediately. Yeah. And now there's no reason to believe that I will not have a very, very long life post-cancer. But I want to make certain that I'm being thoughtful about how I spend the rest of it. Yeah. So that's why I left. I knew I was going to work more in the nonprofit space. I knew it was going to, as I said, in my, in my little speech as I was leaving Walmart, I said, Walmart was a head move where I engaged my heart. I'm about to make a heart move mm -hmm. where I engaged my head. But I didn't know exactly where it was, and, but I know now it was yeah. here. I would love if you could share a little bit more about the process, because I think a lot of people have these moments in their lives and we're hearing a lot of it now, right? Whenever there's a, a crisis or a profoundly changing life event, which for a lot of people has been the pandemic. We know people are making tremendous reevaluations of what they want from their lives and how they want to spend it and thinking about maybe they want to be doing something different. And it can feel really daunting to figure out how to make that switch. So I can share when I went through that, I ended up resigning as president of my company because I couldn't figure out how to do it any other way. Um, I just needed to make space for it. I wish I was the kind of person who could have parallel pathed it. I couldn't. And I know that that's not necessarily helpful. Like just quit your job isn't necessarily the best advice for many people. So once you realize that you wanted to have a different professional legacy, how did you begin that process and start planning for that? Anything that you can share with those listening? Yeah. So first, I am, again, I, I think it's important for people to recognize the privileges that they have. And, and mine are so many. And, and I get to contrast it with the circumstances of people very close to me, even inside of my own family of brothers and sisters and my parents and my grandparents. I had the luxury of being able to mm -hmm. quit without another job. I thought about that as I was making that turn. I know. I did, too. I thought long about it about, okay, so what, so what? So you have this, um, what are you gonna do to ensure that other people have more than they have now? And I knew that part. But the first thing that I did was something I had not done since 1982, when I was at the University of Southwest Louisiana, working in the library. There's something that was true every day of my life since that day which is, I had a job. Mm -hmm. I never stopped being employed for over 30 mm -hmm. years. I went to law school two times. Mm -hmm. I worked through both. There was kind of a rule that says you don't work your first year in law school, except I said, you don't work, you don't eat. So I worked, I was continuously employed the whole time. When I left Price Waterhouse, I went straight to Adams and Reese Law Firm. When I left Adams and Reese, I went straight into Walmart. I said I was going to work stop for a little break before that. And that was going to be the first time as, as I was going to Walmart. And then the chief tax officer at Walmart called me and asked me if I could help him with something, help Walmart with something while I was still in Louisiana right. before I moved to Arkansas. I'm like, really? So it kept happening. So the first thing that I did was I took some yeah. time off. My husband and I went to Polanco, which is a little community inside of Mexico City. He loves Spanish. He speaks it rather well. Me, not so well. We took an apartment and I took time to not be employed and to think. We spent months there. It was wonderful. And there I started talking to recruiters while I was there. And in fact, right as I left, I came out of, of Mexico City and started looking at opportunities. So when recruiters get your name, um, it can be like fire, right? Like wildfire. So right. word got out that I was, was thinking about doing something else. Some recruiters came to me with opportunities to go be the treasurer at a major corporation. Or, and I said, no, no, no. I just had that. <laughs> I left that. I did. That's not, I, I left. I, that was good. I loved it. Right. But I'm not leaving. I'm not running away from Walmart. I'm running to right. something different. And there was someone that I knew at Walmart who ran, I still know her, her name's Kathleen McLaughlin, and she runs the, the philanthropies, if you will, the foundation at Walmart, among other things. She and I had had a conversation as I was, before I even knew I had cancer, I had a conversation with her where I told her, 
how much I admired and respect how she spent her time and what she's what she did, you know, where her energy was placed and that there was a little part of me that felt a little guilty about the fact that I wasn't doing that. Well, then I leave Walmart. She knows that I'm gone. And she told the people at Feeding America when she heard that there was a recruit, they were looking for a CEO. She said, you might want to call Claire. So you see how things are supposed to work out. Had I not worked at Walmart, yeah. I wouldn't have known Kathleen. I was on the foundation board at Walmart. So I knew Feeding America from being on the foundation board at Walmart right. because we We've had a, a deep partnership for a long time. I understood who Feeding America was, what Feeding America was trying to do in the world. And then, as I said, they called me because Kathleen said, I hear, I know it might sound weird, but I think she would, she might just be interested in something like this. Mm -hmm. And I was. Incredible. I know. Yes. You never know until you're on the other side where this is all going to lead. Yeah. Exactly. So in addition to a major career transition, this brought you to Chicago, which is wonderful. Yay. We're so glad you're here. Uh, how was that first winter? Did you have the right clothes? Did you second guess your decision? <laughs> so I got to tell you, so the first winter, I came, I, started, I came in October of 2018 and Everybody in this city, just about, including taxi drivers, Uber, Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, when they find out that I was from the South and I was in Chicago, they'd say, well, you must not have been through a winter yet. <laughs> you haven't been through a winter. And then people would just in front of me say things like, she's not ready. <laughs> and I'd say, well, oh my. I felt I was getting a, a real less than condescending vibe uh -huh. when I came in. So in a weird kind of way, it, it felt almost right that the that very winter, we had a thing called a polar oh, yes. vortex. I remember. You remember? Oh, yeah. Negative okay, so 50. Snow. Negative Yes, ma'am. Negative 50. With wind chill, it was negative 60-something yes. yeah. and negative 80 yeah. one day. Yes. I did not know one's eyeballs could be mm -hmm. cold. I didn't know that was a thing. I, I purchased a balaclava, mm -hmm. so I went deep on the on the merch. By oh the yeah, way. oh yeah. yeah, oh I'm good about merchandise. Yeah. So I went deep on the merchandise. I had a balaclava. I had my glasses. I covered every part of my body as I'd walk through to my office because I love that. Finally, I could actually watch. I live downtown, and our offices were downtown, so I'd walk to my office. <laughs> so I got through that winter. And then you go inside and, now and you I can't see when you have glasses. Like you walk inside and, and it's it just like. Absolutely. And then I'm peeling back all the layers and everything. It was hilarious yeah. to people on in my office. They thought it was quite funny. But here's what it gave me. I have my winter bona fides. You do. Now. Mm -hmm. I do. So when someone in a condescending way looks at me and says, so um, where are you from? And I tell them and they say, oh, well, you're not so well, you know. I was here in 19. Yeah, I was here. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about throwing water out a window yes. and having it freeze. I know. Yeah, I was Isn't here for that. that. So yeah. I, I love it. I have to tell you, it's not that I love the weather every day. The harder part of, of weather here for me is actually not the winter, it's the spring. Because sometimes you we just don't have yeah, one. Yeah, right. Yeah, it all depends. Sometimes it's just... just it's just not yeah. there at all. But again, living downtown, I get to see when the tulips are planted and, I, and I've and i got to get outside. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I, I just love it. This is a wonderful, rich city. I've never felt this way about a place before. I really haven't. I lived in Northwest Arkansas. I love so many people there, but it never became yeah. I found myself here. And within weeks of being here, I was searching to purchase a place to mm -hmm. live. Not to rent because I was home and and I continue to feel that way. And it's just it's a special kind of place, Chicago. Yeah, it's a special It really kind of place. is. I've spent most of my life here. I spent five years in the South and then came back. I mean, it really is. There's no place like it. Well, we're really glad you're here. Good. And you know, so in many ways, Chicago is now your business partner, right? Feeding America's headquarters are here, even though you are all over coast to coast, border to border. Yeah. I mean, permeate the entire United States, but this is the headquarters. Yes. How would you describe this business partner of yours in the city of Chicago? So I'd say that I, I think Chicago is a really strong business partner that has even more potential than we've yet realized. Mm -hmm. So there's some things Chicago's already getting right. There are ways that people from the outside can connect. You can become a part of Chicago. Chicago embraces yes. in ways that I find 
really unique and wonderful and powerful for me as a person coming, uh, you know, new a new transplant to the area. Chicago has brilliance and innovation and creativity and diversity. It has history and culture, and all of those things are wonderful. And it's right on the edge. If could if we could not get in our own way, yes, we we could have some breakthroughs that could take us to yet another space. I find people sometimes here will only disagree in the margins, but spend a whole lot of time talking about the margins, talking about the things they disagree on, Mm -hmm. right? I see it in the political climate here, people who agree on 99.9%, but man, let's spend 90% of our time talking about that Mm -hmm. 0.1% that we disagree on. I think I was a little surprised by, I knew that there were lots of neighborhoods here I thought there was more inclusion than there is yet. Yeah. There's a lot of diversity. There's not as much inclusion. That is a big focus of our current mayor, right? I mean, that is her. Yeah. probably her biggest initiative is her call to action to the business community to work on that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, that again, that's a great unlock, right. right? And unlocking the potential of the young people here in terms of education and going deep on what a rich, meaningful education can be. Those are the types of things that I, I see that when, when we're purposeful as a community and as a society on working on those, the unlocks are remarkable. Mm-hmm. They're vast. So I'm optimistic about the work that I do for the same reasons right. that I'm optimistic about what's happening in Chicago. I think sometimes, I think I said it earlier that inside of a crisis, You've got danger, but man, you've got some opportunity too. Right. There are things that were hidden in plain sight before that now we see them. Bright lights have been shining on these things. And then we get a chance during this moment. We get a chance to do something. Yeah. And I'm feeling an energy that says we're actually going to go get some of this done. And I want to be a part of getting it done. So talk about earning your bona fides. So then, you know, a little over a year, COVID hits, right? And upends Mm. all of our lives. And thinking about food insecurity combined with food waste, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic were just catastrophic colliding challenges that you were at the center of. So how did you and your team not only keep your 200 food banks and 60,000 food pantries and meal programs going, but actually grow them? to meet the surge of the population that was unhoused and in need of food security? Like what's the one thing that you focused on? Well, first off, it's the thing I focused on when I hit the ground that made all the difference are the things I'll tell you too quickly. Mm -hmm. One of them is immediately, remember the lesson I learned when I was chief tax officer? I did not come come into this world pretending. I came in saying, I am not a food banker. I will never be a food banker. I'm going to surround myself by people who know a whole lot about food banking. You don't need me to be a food banker. You need me to know great ideas when I hear them. You need me to be able to get resources and focus on the things that matter for the things that matter and on the things that matter the most. That's what you need from me. I can do those things. So I started out by just being completely blunt and transparent about what my aspirations were for myself and for the work. And I started building a team of professionals who had expertise that I did not have. I started tapping into some professionals who were already on the team who had expertise that I did not have. And we started binding ourselves around this remarkable witness uh, mission of making certain that no one in this country is hungry. Right. So that was absolutely the most important thing that I did. And it started showing up in kind of meaningful ways at the beginning before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, there were things that people on my team intuitively knew that I will never know that we were able to cap capture and to go work on. We took a really hands-on approach. We started gathering information. Well, we started um, getting pulse data. One of the benefits of being a national organization like ours is that as there were hotspots throughout the country, we could actually understand what's happening Mm -hmm. where and get a bird's eye view of what's happening in the country. As we had best practices popping up out of necessity in one place, we could roll them out in advance of the wave. So people were better positioned to, they had, we had to change completely our delivery system. Most of our food banks do not engage in a lot of 
and some in some cases none at all direct delivery of food we're in the middle of a pandemic our agency partners can't have people come into a pantry right. and pick up right. food in this pandemic so we started providing direct distribution of food putting food in the backs of cars very low low touch i'm sure your audience would have seen scenes of people lining up to get that food and our people i say the light came on and feeding american network was found standing in the gap yeah. and that's what they've always done they've done it even more you talked about our numbers before we were very, very proud of the fact that we'd provided 4.5 billion meals to people in That's need. Incredible. During this pandemic, we had so many headwinds, right? So it included the, the medical challenges, a complete change in our distribution, our approach to distribution, but we also had trouble getting access to food. And we have all those people needing more food. We needed bipartisan support for legislation. We actually got bipartisan support for legislation that would help to ensure that people got access to food in both the Trump administration and the Biden administration. I'm like, wow, yeah. right? Um, we needed all of those things to happen. But with all of that, in 2020, our network provided 6.1 billion meals wow. to people. In this year, we will provide 6.5 billion meals. It's just extraordinary. And I'd like to think, and I fundamentally believe, that I had a, I made a contribution oh, to yeah. that. I also know that it wasn't all about me. Thank heaven, it wasn't all about me. There's some remarkably talented, mission-driven people that I get the privilege to work with day in and day out. And I'm so proud that I get to be associated yeah. with them. So. Do you think that we have reframed our perceptions of food security and hunger? And if so, will it last? Or what, what do we need to do to make it last? At a moment in time, we definitely do. Mm -hmm. There's this concept, I refer to it as earned hunger, that people in America, we just, we don't grow up. You don't grow up in an American household having your mom tell you if you're a picky eater, eat your food, there are hungry kids next door. We say, eat your food, there are hungry kids in Africa, mm -hmm. there are hungry kids in China. American families believe you have to look to distant shores in order to find hunger. It's not true. It's been here. There are 35 million people who were food insecure before COVID. 35 million people. During COVID, we, our estimates are that there, there were as many as over 50 million. We think the numbers may be down to 42 at this point, but 42 million people were food insecure. Well, what I think the pandemic did was we were all stuck in front of our televisions, mm -hmm. right? And our, our screens, whatever screens. We couldn't look away. And we, I think we had to process, wait a minute, how would I say that person earned their hunger when their business shut down? They were not allowed to go to work. There was no work to go to. Right. About 40% of the people, even right now, who are relying for, on us for help have never before COVID relied upon the charitable food system. So I think there's an empathy that has evolved as a result. I believe the racial reckoning actually is enhancing to the work as well in terms of people seeing other people as people being honest about the fact that while we are sometimes in the same storm, we are seldom in the same boats. Mm -hmm. We just aren't mm -hmm. in the same boats. And that some of that has nothing to do with how hard we work. Right. Um, sometimes the decks are stacked against us and it's not right. So I think, I absolutely believe that we're at a moment of inordinate empathy and awakening of our consciousness as an American public. Part of my responsibility is to ensure that we don't go back to sleep. Yeah. Um, and part of the way that I can do that is by saying yes, when I have an opportunity to be a guest on a podcast like this one, I thank you for asking me all of those questions that you've asked for having a conversation that's not a one dimensional conversation and for giving me the chance to talk about the work that I get to do every day how important it is. And it's going to be important for a long time. It's likely a marathon, not a sprint. So thanks for giving voice to our work by giving me a chance to be with you today. So I would love to do a quick rapid fire just so we can get to know you a little bit more. These are just some fun questions. Are you up for it? I okay, am. Let's do, do this. Morning person or night owl? Morning. How early? 4.30 oh a.m. Even on Christmas. That's incredible. I'm, I, I don't understand 
I don't understand it. I envy it. I wish I could be it. It's incredible. Coffee or tea? Both. Favorite meal of the day? Breakfast. Mm -hmm. Even for dinner, right? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. It's like the best. Especially for dinner. Especially for dinner. <laughs> Dog or cat? Dog. What is your professional mantra? I am strong. What is the bravest thing you've ever done? Probably being a mom. Beach or mountains? Beach. Sweet or salty? Salty. What are you most proud of? My kids. Claire, it's been so incredible talking with you. My last question is going to be, if you could go back to your 16-year-old self growing up in Louisiana and the household that you did, your view of the world then compared to your view of the world now, reflecting on all that you've experienced in life and done, what would you say to her? You were right. You were right. You were right. You were right to be optimistic. You were right to believe that human beings will tap into their capacity for kindness. You were right to expect great things. You were right. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of the Chicago business community. If we can help in any way, you know, we're here, call on us. And I hope to see you live and in person someday real soon. As do I. I, I can't I wait. I can't wait. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you so Thank much, you Claire. So much. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Sure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Sure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Sure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.